News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. I want to welcome to the program Andrew Dunn. He is uh, a journalist. He is uh, all, uh, formerly of the, uh, what, uh, to, to, to Axios, the Observer, where he used to work for Dan Forrest as well, the former lieutenant governor, gubernatorial candidate, and now the purveyor of Longleaf Politics. It's his Substack. You can go check it out on Substack. Andrew Dunn, welcome to the program, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, Pete. Thanks for having me on the show. Certainly. So uh, did I get everything right, or what, what are you up to now? Are you doing anything uh, besides the Substack you want to uh, let people know about? Oh, you nailed it. That's, okay. uh, that, that's my top thing right now, the Longleaf Politics Substack. You can find that at longleafpol.com. Uh, so, and this is where I found your latest piece, the challenging GOP path to a super majority. So let's, uh, let's break down these numbers right now. You, uh, as I understand it, in the North Carolina General Assembly, uh, Republicans need to pick up two Senate seats and they need to pick up three House seats. Is that it? That's exactly right. So right now, the Republicans have 28 seats in the Senate and 69 in the House, they need 72 and 30 to get that supermajority. And that's important because, with, you know, on a straight party-line vote, that would allow Republicans to override a veto from Governor Roy Cooper. Right. And, and it doesn't seem like that, that's a lot. And when you're looking at this, uh, you know, a, a potential red wave election, you think, oh, it'll be easy, you know, just to pick up two, two seats here, three seats there. Uh, but what's complicating things is we're, we're working with completely new electoral districts after the 2020 census that really shift a lot of power towards suburban areas, towards urban areas. So it's honestly a little remarkable that the supermajority is in play at all. Uh, and that, that speaks to enthusiasm for conservatives around the state. Yeah. Uh, you say Republicans would need to pick up 14 out of 19 toss-up or Democratic-leaning districts in the House to win the supermajority, and then they would need to win six out of nine such districts in the Senate. So I guess I need a definition. What is a, what's a, what's a toss-up, and how far does a district lean Democrat before it gets too far out of the reach for a Republican to win? Yeah, that's a great question. So it all comes down to um, what's called partisan ratings, and how you put those together is basically you look at how those voters have voted in the past couple election cycles in other races. Usually it's for the, for the U.S. President, U.S. Senate, uh, and also from some statewide Council of State races. So you look, you know, a D plus two district, for example, would mean that that district voted two points uh, more Democratic than the state as a whole. So generally anything that's you know, D plus two to R plus two is generally considered more of a toss-up. It could go either way. Once you get into R plus two to R plus five, and then D plus two to D plus five, that's a, a pretty, pretty solid lean. And then after that, after you get into R plus six or D plus six and higher, that's going to be uh, a very challenging to flip the other way. Not to say it can't happen, because it does happen from time to time, but there, it's a big mountain to climb. So one of the races you identified here is former Representative Bill Brawley uh, here in uh, Mecklenburg County, and uh, his seat is a D plus two. Um, and so is this is it fair to call that one sort of a, a leading indicator? I don't want to call it a bellwether, but like an indicator that if he does well, um, then it's going to be a good night for Republicans. I think so. 
um, that would really show you know how the suburbs are tending to lean, and, right. and that's one of the suburban seats that is much more in play than some of the others. And that that race is also interesting because um, former Representative Brawley is not running against an incumbent. So Mecklenburg County and Wake County both picked up uh, an extra house district under the the new redistricting. So that that one is very much in play, and I, I would predict that um, that Mr. Brawley will pick that back up. All right, so let's do your overall prediction here. Do you want to, I mean, you already put it down in print, or on the computer screen, I should say. So do you, you want to go out on a limb? Now, remember, this opens you up to ridicule, and uh, if, if, you are, if you are incorrect. This is why I don't make any predictions anymore on elections. But I saw you did, so if you would like to, I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you make it. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I already wrote it down, so I'll go ahead and say it. Um, I think that Republicans will get the seats they need to take a supermajority in the Senate. Uh, the path is a lot easier on the Senate side. On the House, you know, if you have to ask me, and you are asking me, I'll say that the Republicans will come up a seat or two short in the House to actually get that supermajority. There's just so much that has to break the right way. Now, I say that um, it's very much in play. It definitely could happen. It would not be a surprise if they do take the supermajority in the House. Um, but if you, you know, my gut's telling me it's going to be too difficult, but I guess uh, that's why we have the election. Right. Uh, and so this is important. The supermajority is important because this ties into a, a piece you wrote a couple of days back called Roy Cooper's Stranglehold on North Carolina Politics. And you made this argument that Roy Cooper is by far the most powerful political figure in the state, and it's not even close, um, which I'm old enough to remember when people said that about Phil Berger um, just like a year or so ago, right? But he's So you make this argument that Cooper has, uh, has really kind of come into his own, and he's, it's his use of the veto, correct? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. And, you know, Governor Cooper has already vetoed more legislation than any— uh, than all other governors of North Carolina combined. You know, that said, the North Carolina governor only got the veto power in the 90s, so we're not talking about it, you know, too long of a history. Um, but it's what really led me down this path is I was uh, reading the news that um, there's active negotiations about Medicaid expansion in North Carolina, and I thought, well, how in the world did we get to this point where we went from a largely ineffectual governor uh, to one who's, who's on the cusp of achieving his major policy goal. And it's really been kind of a slow, steady accretion of power since he took over uh, January 1, 2017, you know, built largely on veto power and also his, his efforts statewide to pick up Democrat seats around the state enough that he was able to get, you know, break that supermajority so his veto could hold. Right, and by holding the veto, then he can... Uh, let's just say persuade Democrats, right, to to stay in line. And you mentioned this as well throughout your piece, the number of times that Democrats voted with Republicans on various items only to then walk back their support for those items when Cooper vetoed them. Uh, and, you know, woe to those lawmakers who don't bend the knee to Cooper. They find themselves getting primaried by Cooper-backed candidates. That's exactly right. Uh, Governor Cooper has been extremely aggressive in defending his veto. Uh, and you, know, you alluded to this, but you look at uh, Democrat Senator Kirk Devier in Fayetteville. He was often one of those swing votes uh, who, would, who would side with Republicans uh, in some occasions and was openly considering voting to override Governor Cooper's veto. 
And uh, Cooper and some of his affiliated PACs poured hundreds of thousands of dollars into his primary uh, opponent this year and actually uh, succeeded in unseating him. So he will no longer be a senator after uh, this election cycle. So how much of this is um, sort of own goal type of uh, play by the Republicans? You mentioned that the General Assembly uh, has not been able to advance, you know, bills promoting parental rights in education, protecting women's sports. And they had a big press conference on that one. I mean, there was I thought that one was at least going to get some traction and it didn't. Um, and and they didn't. And, and maybe you mentioned this also. Maybe there was some fear of blowback from suburban voters. I don't know. Uh, but it, it, it does it does obviously affect their calculations when they're trying to run bills, knowing that Cooper's veto is probably going to stand. Yeah, and they're also very concerned about Governor Cooper's ability to manipulate the media. Um, you know, if he if the governor makes a big stink about something, tries to paint it in some way, it's going to be amplified by the media all around the state. And I think Republican leaders are still a little gun shy after the, the experience with House Bill 2. Uh, back in 2016, I know know, the Republican leadership is very much interested in keeping North Carolina's top rating in in best for business. And they're very concerned about getting, you know, about uh, social issues, things like that, kind of sidetracking that, uh, you know, the good for business uh, demeanor that the state has. Well, yeah, especially, I mean, you've got Cooper. I mean, he he proved himself more than willing and capable of whipping corporate support for a boycott against his own state, you know, so why wouldn't he do it again? Um, exactly. Yeah, Andrew Dunn, I appreciate you making time for us today. You could read Andrew's work at his uh, his Substack. It's, uh, it's a great read. I highly recommend it, longleafpaul.com. Uh, thanks for your time, Andrew, and uh, we'll catch up to you as the uh, election draws nigh. Sounds good. Thanks, All right, Pete. thank you. Take care. Hey, a reminder, Thursday night, the final Talktoberfest of this Talktober all month. Talktoberfest 2022, presented by Kristen Bernard and Power Home Team, Keller Williams South Park. This Thursday at 8 o'clock, Brett Winterbull, Bo Thompson, and Beth Troutman. It's the three Bs, the triple Bs. They're going to be on the the Facebook live tube, 8 o'clock. Go check them out. It's uh, I'm going to hang out in the comments section, as I do on the Talktoberfests. It's a lot of fun. We talk about food. We try to derail the hosts as best we can. Just keeping them on their toes. Um, so thanks again to Andrew Dunn for, uh, for hanging out. I do appreciate it. And I highly recommend if you have an interest in North Carolina politics, you want to read his Substack, this Longleaf Politics, uh, longleafpaul.com. Or you can go to the Substack page itself. It's uh, longleafpolitics.substack.com. Either way, either site uh, will get you there. Uh, And he puts out like this one here the other day was from uh, earlier this month, Roy Cooper's stranglehold on North Carolina politics. And I didn't get into this with him, but it really is a testament to the power of the Democrat machine, really, that, that you could be so thoroughly trounced and dismantled in, uh, you know, late, uh, well, right before the 2010 election. Um, in North Carolina, the state Democratic Party was in shambles. So scandal after scandal after scandal, executive directors, 
back to back with sexual misconduct charges against them. And uh, I mean, at one point they were getting ready to lose their uh, statewide headquarters in Raleigh for failure to pay the rent. Um, the, 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 the statewide party apparatus was so bad that the incumbent Senator Kay Hagan, um, she actually used the Wake County Democratic Party infrastructure to help her run her and manage her campaign because the state party was so bad, it was so bad at their get out the vote efforts and all. It was just, it was a wreck. Um, and then of course you get, um, the HB two stuff, but you also had the, um, the moral Monday movement that rose up and sort of animated this shell of a party that the Democrats were at the time. Uh, but you know, all things they're, you know, move in cycles like this. And so the, the Democratic machine, it, it stumbled. It got some sand in the gears, no doubt, but it still functions. And, you know, Cooper is testament to that. And so he has now been able to wield power through the use of his veto. This is why a supermajority matters in this state, because until Democrats break ranks with their Democrat governor, on, on overriding one of his vetoes or something, um, then you're at a stalemate and this, and they can't get much of anything done. Now there will be progressives and media, but I repeat myself that say, Oh, this is a good thing. This is a stabilizing thing. You know, it's a stabilizing thing. Again, keep in mind that the state of North Carolina has been under Democrat rule for over a century, almost a century and a half. They had been in control and 10 years of Republican control has elicited more lawsuits, right? More more screaming and wailing and gnashing of teeth about the end of democracy and all of this. They cannot stand to be out of power for any bit of time. It's, it's another example. North Carolina is a perfect example. You saw it in Wisconsin as well. Remember all of the protests up in Wisconsin when Scott Walker won, right? That when they don't control the levers of power, then those levers of power are illegitimate. Uh, here's another one. Um, where is it? Politico. Where did it go? Just reported. Mm. No, no. Where is it? I just lost it. They just sent. Let me see. Maybe I. Here, here it is. Uh, Politico reports that the Biden administration is about to warn everybody about, quote, threats to the nation's election infrastructure ahead of midterms. An intelligence bulletin is slated to be issued this week. So the polling is really that bad. So now, seriously, though, are you going to believe that? Why would we? Why would I? Why would I believe this? This Is this the same intelligence community made up of the same people that wrote that big letter in the paper that talked about how Hunter Biden's laptop story had all of the makings of a Russian disinformation op? Those folks, am I supposed to believe them again? Why would I? Either you're an idiot or you think I'm an idiot, right? You're going you're, you're gonna to come out and you're going to release this, oh, an intelligence bulletin from the Biden administration saying, we got to watch out. There are threats to our election infrastructure. So what? If a race doesn't go your way, like let's say Stacey Abrams, right? Like let's say she loses her re-election campaign for governor of Georgia, then then what, she gets to claim for another four years that the election was stolen? 
This is why your claims of election denialism don't land the way you think that they do. This is why people don't believe you. Media and administrative administration officials. Set to warn about threats to nation's election infrastructure. There are always threats to the infrastructure, are there not? I'm old enough to remember when the company called Diebold was targeted by the left, right? Now, as I understand it, I saw this over the weekend. Well, I mean, I had a long weekend because I was sick. So at some point I'm watching. Oh, you know what also I saw? Oh, my gosh. The, The Waukesha Christmas parade murderer guy. That jerk. Representing himself in trial? Holy smokes, what a raging narcissist psychopath. Holy cow. I watched some of that court TV proceeding. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The guy, the guy thinks he is the smartest person in that room. He thinks, he, he thinks that he is putting one over on everybody. It really is amazing to watch somebody like that behave. Like he's going through and you could see he's got all these guys' files and stuff and he's like moving papers and he's turning papers and being real deliberate in looking at the paper and then he asks a stupid question. And then he looks back at the paper as he moves another piece of paper real deliberately, slowly, and then he asks another stupid question. Although this time he may like kind of stick his jaw out, look up at the ceiling, kind of like roll his eyes up to th- like act like he's thinking of the perfect way to construct this really stupid question, which then, of course, prompts an objection, which is sustained because he's an idiot. But he thinks he's totally winning. He argues with the judge, and he's arguing with the def- with the prosecution. He's objecting and keeps calling objections substained. He keeps calling them, yeah, substained, substained. That's what he's calling them. But he thinks... He thinks he's doing some fantastic work. And he doesn't know the law because, of course, he doesn't because he's an idiot. But he thinks he does. And he thinks he is going to win this case, obviously. Man, unreal. That was quite the show. Not in a good way either. All right. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. I'm going to tell you a story about, about the big gun out west. Oh, no, I'm not talking about my arms. I'm talking about a large gun that's in downtown Clyde and some folks who stomped all over that military memorial. Uh, first, let me get over here to Shane. Welcome to the show. Hello, Shane. Hey, P, man. I love you guys. Hey, thanks. Appreciate it. So I just wanted to make a, one point about what's going on with the way he's conducting his uh, defense. Uh, we're talking about the Brooks trial. Yeah, okay. So a lot of people are saying, well, he's got some good questions and there's some things he's doing right. Well, what people don't understand or maybe don't understand is that he had counsel appointed to him for a year. And everything that you're seeing him pull out is all the trial prep that they did and i think he found fired them like a couple days before so basically all he's doing is just reading through how they had (laughs) set up their trial prep it's not his ideas he has no idea what he's doing no it's clear to put himself in life in prison 
because he's one of the stupidest humans drawing breath in the Western Hemisphere. Right. So I heard somebody say what he is trying, uh, what the judge is trying to do is to preserve the conviction, basically, because he is so bad that the fear is that he's going to win an appeal after he gets convicted. So they're doing their best to try to preserve the conviction once it comes down. Well, that that would be more like a, an ineffective assistance of counsel, which <laughs> I mean, he's got really bad counsel right now. <laughs> but he, yes, what she's doing, she's being she's going way out of her way, yeah. way out of her way, so that there's no basis for appeal. They will appeal. Somebody, some idiot's going to pick this up just for, so that uh, their firm gets attention. Sure, but there's no basis for appeal. But that's why she's doing so many things that you would think, man, just shut him down. No, let him go. Let him do everything he wants to do. And then he can't say, I didn't get an opportunity to do something. She also makes a good record on things like his ability to read and write, his education level, his ability to speak. And she's done, she's thrown in a few things like, yes, yesterday I thought you presented your case very well. Well, she was making record against the appeal, basically. Right. Yeah, because I heard her do, I think it was two of those the other day, where she, and, and he, like, he let her do it, and, and so, like, this has become, obviously, like, a, a a pretty common thing that she does, is I'm going to make a record, and he seems to be okay with it, he seems to prefer that, like, okay, let's make a record, but then he just keeps interrupting her, and then she keeps saying, I gotta make a record, I have to make a record, and then he lets her say a couple more sentences, and then he just... Uh, interrupts her again. I bet a lot of lawyers are looking at him and thinking, man, if I treated a judge like that. <laughs> oh, he was cursing today. And yeah. Yeah, he, he called her a liar. He said she had committed treason. But what's amazing is when he's doing examination across, and like, I think there was one point where he asked the, uh, someone who worked in the police department, he says, well, what, what do you not know? Yeah. She said, so, yeah, and that was the woman, she was like, well, you cut your hair. And he also refused, yeah, he keeps referring to himself as the alleged defendant. Like, dude, you're not an alleged defendant. You are the defendant. There's no alleged defendant here. It's just a defendant, and it's you. Right, and when, when he objects to them using his name, see, that's why all the, the lawyers that I know, we were just waiting with bated breath for him to get his mother on the stand because we were waiting for her to refer to him and then have... The, um, the state asked for what did you name your son? Did he get out of having a name, but he, he didn't call her, and we're like, no. Yeah. We <laughs> well, and I liked what he was. They started to at some, the day I saw was when he put his ex girlfriend on the stand, and he tries to get her. And and before that, he had the detective on, and he tried, and the de- he asked the detective, "Well, why did she lie?" And he's like, "Well, he didn't. She didn't lie. She just didn't tell us the whole story the first time. And then the second meeting, she did tell us the rest of the story." And he's trying, like, "Why?" And the detective's like, "Well, I think she was afraid that you were going to whip up on her again." And like, <laughs> I mean, just dude opens these doors and just gets stomped, and oh, I, but he yeah. thinks he's doing great. He thinks he's doing great. He does. And the best door that he opened was the picture of him standing in front of the murder vehicle. And he said, well, how do you know that's me? Oh, my God, that was a door the size of a mountain. <laughs> so they got to play the video of him being a gangster and, you know, holding guns and all this, dancing around in front of the murder vehicle. Nice. That's unreal. Unbelievable. Uh, Shane, I appreciate the call, sir. Good to chat with you. No problem. All right, take it easy. <laughs> 
It is, yeah. I all I saw was uh, probably about two or three hours of it. I think it was probably Thursday. I was just kind of laying in bed, had the laptop going, watching the court TV stream. Oh man, uh, Robert, welcome to the program. Hello, Robert. Hi. Hey. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Certainly. I I would like to see that court TV. I haven't seen that. That sounds very funny, very interesting. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to make a comment about um, your discussion of. Uh, Democrats being election deniers or your fear that they're setting it up to be election deniers. And I just had to laugh. I mean, I'm just an idiot from New Mexico passing through your part of the country, but aren't the biggest election deniers of all time the MAGA Republicans? Yeah, there are a lot of them over there, too. But you you got to recall also that, how old are you, Robert? Do you remember the 2000 election? Uh I'm 71. Yeah, so you remember 2000, right? Sure. Right. You remember what happened after 2000? Well, what are you? Well, you have to be more specific. Tell me what. You're well, what do you? What, what? What topic do you think we're discussing right now? We're talking about election deniers, right? So, what happened with the 2000 election and after the 2000 election? Well, that was a much closer election. Doesn't matter. Much more contestable. That doesn't matter. 2016. No, but that doesn't matter. So, oh, it does. It no, does it doesn't. Matter. No, because, because once you, you deny the existence... When you contest an election that is so um, dramatically uh, lost by the Republicans, uh, that's not the same election as, as Bush-Gore. So, drama- so, wait, so you're saying that the, uh, the margin of victory makes the uh, denialism legitimate? If there is... Um, uh, uh, a potential to recount votes that might make a difference. Yes, uh, they would not have made a difference. Can you? Are you telling me that the recounts might have made a difference back in 2016? Oh no, I don't. I don't think they would have. They, they but, would have in 2000. I mean, they might have. No, I, I, I don't know. So hang on, Robert. Robert, hang on. I don't know in every particular instance whether recounts would have or would have not. I don't believe the evidence suggests they would have, but I don't know that. I, but I do know that after the 2000 election, that there was ha- almost half of the country by polling that said that Bush was selected, not elected. And then there was also, uh, we had the swift boating, remember that, of, uh, of John Kerry four years later. And that was used okay. to undermine the legitimacy of, Don- of, of, of uh, George W. Bush's victory as well. Um, okay. And then Donald so what, Trump in 2016, well, in 2016, Donald Trump wins. In 2016, yeah. and you've got people then that are saying that it was because the elections were hacked and that he won because Russia colluded and Russia hacked and got the emails from Podesta with the fishing expedition and all that. So there were, there, there's, there's a good chunk of the population that always believes that the election is somehow has somehow been tampered with when their team loses. Okay. What do you believe about the 2020 election? Do you believe... That uh, Trump won. No, Trump didn't win. If Trump no, won, it, no. It, well, why? Well, I know you're just passing through. I don't know if you've probably never heard the show before. Um, I haven't. Right. So, so I do think it's interesting that you have an, you've got a, a, a preconceived idea of of what my opinion should be because I guess I'm I'm on talk radio. I, I don't know. Right. I do. Yeah, you're on. You're on radio, and you're you're talking about what idiots the Democrats are. Well, a lot of them are. Let's be fair. I mean, a lot of them are. Oh, but none of the Republicans are. Did I say none of them are? No. 
No, but you just no, but you keyed in on my my criticism of Roy Cooper, the Democrat machine, North Carolina politics, right? Because that's what we were talking about before. Well, I did. I'm yeah, just, I'm just getting to know you. My my first blush. Yeah, maybe I. You know, no, it's all right. No, assumptions it, and you know what assuming does makes an ass out of you and me. True, but, true enough. But uh, but uh, yeah, I'm good to hear. I'm glad to hear that that you um, you can see both sides of the fence. Well, yeah. Look, hey, I mean, I think I, I think it's pretty clear that Joe Biden is the president. I don't think we oh, would have. We, yeah, we wouldn't have this economy otherwise. That's all right, uh, Robert. I appreciate the uh, the chat. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll get to more calls in a moment. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Look, to Robert's point, he was responding to me uh, mocking the announcement from the Biden administration that we're going to put out this intel announcement. People are going to be trying to mess around with our elections again, which, of course, sets the table for what is predicted to be losses for Democrats. But it sets the table for election denialism. And... If Donald Trump's administration put that out, too, I think Robert would probably be thinking the exact same thing that I said, right? Because he doesn't trust Donald Trump. See, I don't I don't trust Joe Biden. I don't trust the Biden administration. I also know that in virtually every one of the last elections that Republicans, oh, not even virtually all of the last three election cycles that Republicans won. Democrats believed, Democrat voters believed, and media, but I repeat myself, they they believed that the Republican candidate had somehow or another cheated or that the president was illegitimate. This is this was two thirds of people after Hillary lost to uh, Donald Trump in 2016. Two thirds of Democrats believed that. I mean, you, you may want to believe that you're morally superior and you would never be suckered in by any of these kinds of, you know, conspiracy theories and all of that. But my goodness, I mean, the polling was clear. What do you think prompted the whole Russia collusion hoax? Where, where, where do you think all of that came from? The the willingness to believe that Donald Trump paid hookers in Moscow to, we, to whiz on beds, right? Where, where do you think all of that came from? The same sort of fever dreams, this, you know, when I say Trump broke people's brains, I mean it pro and con. I mean, people that are so in love with Donald Trump, he can do no wrong. And people who so hate Donald Trump, he could do no right. And everything gets filtered through this Trump prism and it breaks your brain. Uh, Ralph, welcome to the program. Hello, Ralph. Hey, Pete. Hey, if uh, Robert's still listening, uh, when Trump got elected, 30 House members voted not to certify the election. 13 of them are still serving today. So, I mean, you know, it's the same old song and dance, but with a different dance partner. True. They've been objecting to the certification of the Electoral College counts uh, probably 20 years now, I think, was the, the Democrats first pulled it sometime in, it was either 2000 or 2004. I think it may have been 04 was the first time it was run. Um, and so they've been doing it for years. It's not new. Um, and this idea that uh, in 2000, when I was trying to get to with the 2000 was it, it's not about the closeness of the, the, the hanging chads and the recount down in Florida. That wasn't the point. 
The point was the rise of this conspiracy theory about the Diebold machines that changed people's votes, right, and gave George W. Bush the presidency. They could not believe that Al Gore lost, and they they constructed this entire conspiracy. And by the way, there are pieces of evidence that people on the right that Trump supporters can point to. For example, when when uh, uh, ballot counting stops in various states that happen to be really important states, when ballot counting stops, that sends up some signals. That, that's a warning, like something is not kosher going on here. And it is very easy for people then to take those types of pieces of information and run with them and construct larger tales out of them. And uh, we could have a we could have a, a system that is a lot more secure if we wanted to, but we don't want to because I think this serves a lot of people's interests to have the system as uh, uh, riddled with loopholes as it is. All right, Ralph, I appreciate the call. Speaking of Ralph, by the way, did you know that they're doing a they're doing a sequel to a Christmas story? You seen this? I don't know how I feel about it. <clears throat> I don't know how I feel about it yet. Hang on a second. I have it somewhere. It's in the stack of stuff. Uh, no, no, that's the rattiest cities. Yeah, we're on the list of rattiest cities. Um, here it is. HBO Max has released its new trailer for A Christmas Story Christmas, which is the sequel to the holiday classic. It's coming out November 17th, A Christmas Story Christmas. The sequel follows an adult Ralphie in the 1970s who returns to his home on Cleveland Street to bring his kids a magical Christmas like the one from his childhood. It pays homage to the 1983 holiday classic, which shows the iconic house where Ralphie, played by Peter Billingsley, grew up. The fragile leg lamp, or what's left of it, even makes an appearance. Uh, We got Randy's going to be in it, and Schwartz, and Flick, and Farkas. They'll all be in it. Much of the original movie was filmed in Cleveland, and a Christmas story uh, house, the house from the movie, uh, has become a popular tourist attraction over the years. So there you go. I'm not, again, I'm not sure how I feel about that. At least it's not a remake, but, you know, sometimes just, just let the classic be the classic, you know? I think Billingsley is going to be in it. So he is going to, he is cast in it. So at least they got that. And the, the original cast members that are you know, that are named. So, uh, uh. All right. If he wears the big pink bunny outfit, it'll be worth it. Uh-huh.